greetings in that worthy name that we just gave our all to the worthy name of the Lord Jesus. Is he worth more than cars? I appreciated the first message, Warren. Um, and uh, the part that stood out to me, maybe because of what I uh, experienced this past week, is we wait to say something to someone because we might not say it perfectly. I was with somebody for three days today in a truck. It wasn't until the third day that we really began to talk <laughs> with an agnostic. Some very good talks. But uh, ministers face the same thing that everybody else does <laughs> in talking about the Lord and uncertainty and all that. And I missed most of the testimony. I was... Uh, distracted and trying to get this thing on, so uh, I didn't hear uh, Alex's testimony, uh, very much of it, so uh, I'd like to hear it maybe personally sometime. So, okay, why don't we, well, you were just saying, let's just pause for a word of prayer right now. Lord, we are grateful to you, Lord, yes, you are worthy You're worthy to be zealous about, to be passionate about, because you were passionate for us. Lord, if it's true that we love you because you first loved us, then it has to be true that we are passionate for you and your work because you were first passionate in your work and for us. That when we are passionate, for you and your work and your people, then we are like you. It is part of the sanctification that we experience. So thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for uh, going before us and giving us an example and then giving us your spirit. So, Lord, we pray you would be with us this morning to guide us and direct us and instruct us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was at home. When I'm at home reading or studying, my nine-year-old son sometimes wonders to me why I'm doing nothing. And I say, I am doing something. And he says, why are you always doing something? (laughs) That happened last Friday, as I was studying on the computer in the living room, and uh, and I told I was doing something. I said, in fact, the Lord just changed my message in the last 15 minutes, what I was going to preach today. <laughs> so uh, that happens. In fact, the message that I was planning to preach has been postponed. I, um, I thought it might be good to... Uh, Give a little bit of a foundational, more more of a foundational message this morning before we move on. That we 
as a leadership team, are currently being mentored by Rex Blevins and Leonard Martin. One of the things they encourage us to do is to turn the page from the past and give clear leadership into the future. The past includes some of the missteps by us leaders, some relational difficulties with others. Some of the past also included a pause in us giving clarity of vision and direction for the congregation. So they recommend that we turn the page and move forward. And there'll be more, probably more explanation in the brothers' meeting, but I thought it would be good to have a little bit of a foundational message of where the leadership is planning to, what the page might look like. New Hope began, this is Rex Blevins, uh, the congregation there. They had, uh, when they started their, restarted their church, I don't know, a year or two ago, been fairly recent, that they actually found a new confession of faith and practice. And they, con- they adopted this confession for their own church wholesale. And then they're going through step by step and adjusting it for their congregation. It wasn't, it wasn't one that they had. It was actually one that the believers, followers of Jesus in State College used. But it wasn't original with them. I don't know where it actually came from. So in the name of pushing the reset button for us at the congregation leading out, I was intending to continue teaching on the confession of faith that we have. But as I was meditating, I felt that there really needs to be some explanation. Some perspective is probably needed first before we just move right on. So I thought it best to pause on the confession of faith teaching and give some clarification what is meant by turning a page and what can you and what you can expect might be on that page. So that's my intention this morning. Some of uh, you visitors may not understand where we're at, but uh, we as a congregation, we have been facing some difficulties. Within a year after Oasis started, we began to face some difficulties. And everyone here has their own story and their own version of what was the difficulties and where it stems from. We understand that. Not everybody's story is going to be the same. So you will hear from my story. (laughs) I will acknowledge that. Be from my story. But I want to acknowledge that not everybody has the same story, and you may differ in certain areas, and that's okay. Within a year, at the beginning of Oasis, we recognized that the original plan and vision that we believed God had for Oasis was not necessarily taking place. We were slowly becoming something else, something other in vision and practice than what we had initially envisioned when we left Harmony. 
The original description that John gave in the first brothers meeting when he took a grassy plant, he cut it in half and he ended up with two grassy plants. And he said, we are the same rootstock, but will be planted in a different location. John basically said, he said, we're not starting off with something new. He said, the body, the one that was cut off, should continue to grow. A seed, when you plant a seed, completely develops from scratch. It develops a new root, a new shoot, everything new. But he said, that's not where we find ourselves. He said, we have an established body, and we should be able to continue growing without a big shock. Now, you can decide whether that actually came past. I think we had a little bit of a shock. I would agree. I would, that would be my opinion. Well, a year later, we realized it appears that we may be coming something new, mostly in the area of vision and practice, in ways that we were not all comfortable with. So we began to give definition to our former established vision and practice And that's when we began to experience some other shock. Our mentors tell us that we probably took too much for granted. We assumed everyone knew where we were and where we were going. Early on, they say, we should have created clarity on what our vision for Oasis was and not just assumed it was clear to everyone. That was our fault. We could have possibly avoided many of the relational difficulties if we would have done that. If we would have been clear in our vision, families and individuals could either embrace the heart of that vision and plug in, or they could recognize that their own vision is significantly different and remove themselves to a congregation that is closer to their own perspective and vision. As the scriptures say, can two walk together except they be agreed? It's in this context that I say we want to turn a page and give clear leadership for the future here at Oasis. There was a brother, Tim Sizett actually was, he's not here today. He was reading a book King Jesus Claims His Church by Finney Caruvilla. Caruvilla, how you say that? Something like that. Some of you have read that book or parts of it. I don't know if anybody's read it all. He commended to me afterwards about that book. He said one of the things that book did for him was it gave him language to concepts and quandaries that he had in his mind. The concepts were in his mind, the questions were in his mind, the issues were in his mind, but he couldn't wrap his thoughts around enough to really clearly talk about it. And here he found a book that systematically laid it out and gave him language to talk about it. Not only did it bring clarity in his own mind as he understood 
this is language and this is how I interact with other things and he put the pieces together. That book does an amazing thing in a number of areas. So it was, it brought clarity to his own mind and it also initiated conversation with others. For the first time, he could see the bigger picture and how it fit together with other ideas. And much clearer than before, he could connect beliefs and ideas with actions and consequences. The book gave perspective he didn't have before, and it gave him the language to talk about it. Now, I feel the same way about something else this morning. That confession of faith, that new hope, uh, adopted for their own, does exactly that for me. The spirit in which it was written resonates in my heart. The content, I very much appreciate it. And it is very much in tune with my understanding of the original goal and focus of Oasis. So, because that is true, I'm going to follow, largely follow the format of that confession this morning. It will not answer all our questions, but I believe it is a summary. It will help us to understand what page we are going on or are on. So it is divided in two parts. I'm writing too big. The common faith, what we believe, and then the common the common practice. How we live. And so I'm going to talk about those two parts there. The common faith, what we believe, is the uh, initial first part. And, and if you're familiar with confessions of faith, many brief confessions of faith will have only the first part. If you look at, um, well, I don't know, it, it's come most, most confessions of faith that aren't either from an Anabaptist perspective or don't go back to the Westminster Confession or something of that nature, deals mostly with what you believe. Is, it, is what we believe important? Of course it is. Of course it is. It's very important. But many people see the uh, Christianity as only a set of beliefs. We don't believe that, that it's only a set of beliefs. It is a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. A, a um, obedient love Faith relationship 
that produces a new life. That's what Christianity is. Now, what Alex shared this morning, how do we enter into that relationship? Are we born with it? Are you in a godly home, therefore you just grow up in it? Or a church that doesn't have any troubles, so do you grow up into it? No. We enter into that relationship. And this is right out of the confession of faith. You understand why my heart resonates with this. We enter into that relationship by hearing the call of God. You need to hear the call of God. Through his word. Now, his word can be in different places. It can be you might be reading the Bible, or you might read a track, or you might hear a testimony, or somebody might witness to you. You need to hear the word. You need to hear the call of God through his word. And his spirit working in your heart. No man can come unto the Father except the Father draw him. It's the work of God, and you need to hear that, and the Spirit of God working in your heart. That's number one. How do we enter into that call? Hear the word, hear the call of God. Number two, repent. Repenting of your sins and turning from our selfish life and the world. Our selfish life and the world. We hear a lot about repentance, repenting from sin. That is right. But repentance from sin includes our own selfish life and the world, which is the heart of sin, where the heart of sin comes from. Number three, yielding to Jesus Christ as Lord of our life. Turning, repenting, and then yielding. And then receiving the gift of of a new life offered through Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, and this is where I actually failed to go directly in my conversation with this man last Thursday. I failed in this one area. You think you don't do it witnessing perfectly. I, I, I look back and I failed. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only man and we know him as a God-man, but he's the only man who conquered death. Adam failed and sinned. Jesus came and lived that perfect life, and through then his death paid for our sins, and he has conquered death. We are all doomed to die. And unless, unless we are participating in the life of Jesus Christ, we're going to die eternally. There is no other name under heaven whereby we may be saved. The Lord Jesus, you see, we can be successful in life, we can be good in life, but we can never have eternal life except through Jesus Christ. When I say good in life, I'm thinking comparatively. We can be good without Jesus. Good. No one else conquered death. And so, we hear the call of God, we repent, we surrender, and then we receive that gift through Jesus Christ. 
That's what we believe. Now, we live the Christian life in exactly the same way. A living faith that daily moves us to surrender to Christ. That's how we live. That's how we maintain the Christian life. This is the common faith of all Christians. We're talking about the common faith. This is the heart of Christianity. This is what John 15 is all about. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Connected to the vine, you become fruitful. Disconnected in some way or not bearing fruit, you get cut off. This is why some people who call themselves Christians are not Christians. It doesn't matter if you are conservative and biblical in many externals. Or if you seem loving and kind and gracious and tolerant. It doesn't matter. If you're not connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian. If you're not bowed your heart and life to Jesus, to King Jesus, and walk with him in that way, you are not a Christian. Now, if you are a Christian and you are struggling with the flesh and the world and the devil, persevere. God will bring discipline and trials into your life, and he will wean you from those things and bring you to himself. So, if that's the heart of Christianity, we could ask the question, well, do we need anything else? I'm going to read right out of the confession. As Christians, we hold to certain beliefs and correct beliefs are important. We derive our beliefs from the Bible, believing all that it teaches. But the Bible is a big book, a book of history, poetry, exhortation and prophecy it is not a systematic statement of doctrine and here's the reason for the confession of faith since even sincere people differ in what they understand it to teach it is helpful to summarize the key points of belief christians have done that since the beginning of the church so a confession of faith summarizes what we believe the Bible teaches, what it teaches about God, about Jesus, about the spirit, about man, about sin, about salvation, about the Christian life, about the future, second coming, and all those things. It's the faith that is once delivered to the saints. It's what we believe the Bible teaches. And what we believe about the Bible and what it teaches is very important. Now, here comes the second place, our common practice, how we live. And I am going to now read its introduction to that part, and then I will divide up that introduction in different parts, and we'll discuss each one of them as we go along. Our common practice, how we believe. The Christian church not only believes sound doctrine, but also upholds sound practice. Hmm, think about that a while. We don't just believe sound doctrine, we uphold sound practice. What we believe cannot be divorced from how we live. We do not really believe in our Lord Jesus unless we follow and obey him. I'll read these all without comment right now because we're going to comment on them later. 
Under the new covenant, God writes his laws in our hearts. With God's laws written in our hearts, we learn to fear him and we want to obey him. Indeed, we develop personal convictions to obey him. Even so, our obedience to God is not just a personal matter. God has designed that we serve him from the context of a brotherhood, a congregation. The example, the exhortation, and admonition of others help us apply God's law to our lives. We believe that when a person is led of God to cast his lot with a particular group of believers, he or she will also desire to embrace the practices of that group out of love for God and his people. Should members demonstrate an independent spirit or constantly find themselves on the edge of what is considered acceptable practice, we see this as a different problem as compared with members who find themselves at odds with a particular aspect of our group practice, yet demonstrate a workable, teachable spirit. In both tolerant and legalistic church settings, it is common for those who profess the name of Christ to defend practices that are a spiritual detriment. To avoid this, a local assembly must constantly be yielding itself to Christ, the head of the church, and be willing to change practices that are not pleasing to him. Because the church of Jesus Christ is no longer united like it once was, we believe it is helpful to identify specific historical Christian principles and practices. However, we believe that if a church adopts standards or practices that are not specifically commanded in the New Testament, it must be diligent in teaching the scriptural principles behind these standards, as well as the limitations of such standards. We have tried to identify practices that were considered normal for various pilgrim churches through the centuries. While we consider the practices below important, we do not consider them to be the weightiest matters of the gospel. Rather, we believe these are applications of biblical instruction that God wants us as his followers to practice today. We view these practices as pertinent issues in light of the times in which we are living. These are not written with the goal of undermining practices specifically commanded in the Bible. Jesus said his laws can be summed up in two great commandments or principles, loving God with all our hearts and loving our neighbor as ourselves. The following points of common practice all grow out of these two commandments. We live as we do because we love God and our neighbor. If we do any of these things for any other reason, apart from love in its deepest form, our practice becomes empty and meaningless. That was a long, long reading. I understand that. But I hope you could follow after. Then what follows afterwards is 20 points of commandments or principles or practices that grow out of love for God and others applied in our modern world. And we'll touch on that a little bit at the end.
What I read there is what I believe is God's heart for his people here at Oasis. What I just read is principles that we as leadership have attempted to communicate. But what is contained here is language that explains it both well to me and I hope in a way that you can also understand our heart. So now we're going to go down through these points again, and I will give my explanation of it. So I'm going to reread just a paragraph, one paragraph at a time this time. Okay, the first point, number A. Uh, a. The Christian church not only believes sound doctrine, but also upholds sound practice. What we believe cannot be divorced from what, how we live. We do not really believe in our Lord Jesus unless we follow and obey him. Most churches, I say many churches, should I say most churches, will accept you if you believe the right things. If you would want to go and get a job at the new Answers in Genesis arc, they would give you a paper, their confession of faith, and you need to agree that you believe all those things. And if you agree with those things, then you could get a job there. Because you need to believe the right things. As Paris Reinhardt said in the uh, shekels, 10 shekels and a shirt, if you know, if you can say, uh-huh, at the right time, to the question, you can join the church. You're in. So you need to believe the right things. But James says that faith without works is dead. He said to this imaginary person, show me your faith without your works. Your faith, your common faith, show it to me without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Follow and obey Jesus. This is the core of the Christian that will motivate us and challenge us for as long as we live. The Christian church upholds sound practice. Okay, B. Under the new covenant, God writes his laws in our hearts. With God's laws written in our hearts, we learn to fear him and we want to obey him. Indeed, we develop personal convictions to obey him. Even so, our obedience to God is not just a personal matter. God has designed that we serve him from the context of a brotherhood. The example and exhortation and admonition of others help us apply God's law to our lives. This is a balanced position between individualism and just growing up in a church culture. Anyone this is my background. Anyone growing up in a strong church culture can just grow up in that culture 
and not develop personal convictions, not develop a real relationship with God because they are just in a system that just brings them along. All you need to do is fit in. Not good. God's law is not being written on that person's heart. He is just performing the expectations of his culture. The other side is individualism, where it's I and God, and I have my personal convictions. And what I am personally convicted for, that's what I do. John Copeland, in an article that he wrote, A Vision for Conservative Anabaptists, that Neil read a little bit about a month ago. He said, um, he was talking about what he calls a cultural shift. And I'm going to read a little bit of it here. He said, the resultant cultural shift has been in the favor of the individual, individual rights, freedoms, beliefs, choices, gifts, and potential. They are primarily about oneself. In the West, we simply can't imagine anyone but me being the ultimate determiner of the major choices in life. Even Warren, when that man wanted to follow Jesus, Jesus told him no. He was not the ultimate determiner of his life, so he listened to Jesus. But we can hardly imagine that here in the West, that we're not the ultimate determiner of major choices in life, of what beliefs and values I hold deeply, and nowadays what I even think is right and wrong. And this is John Copeland still speaking. Any group which I am a member that attempts to dictate or strongly urge that I ought to do or not do with my life or what I ought to believe or not believe or what is right or wrong for me is seriously out of place at best and abusive at worst. So, two sides, individualism or just simply growing up in a culture and not getting personal conviction. There is a pathway down the middle. God has designed that we serve him from the context of a brotherhood. Now, which is easier? I have a question for you. Which is easier, to serve God in your own personal closet? Or to serve God in the context of other brothers and sisters? Answer that question. Which is easiest? Just me and God alone or me and God and my family? There's this variation of the one song that I heard of somewhere. said, uh, I'm so glad that I'm a part of the family of God. There's another variation of that. It's that I'm surprised that you're a part of the family of God. Sometimes we might think that of each other, don't we? So which is easiest? You alone in your closet with God or you walking with God amongst others? And I think we know the answer, which is the hardest. John says we cannot love God. This is not John Copeland. This is John, the Apostle John says we cannot love, say we love God if we do not also love our brother. Paul tells us to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
we are told to submit to one another. We serve God in the context of a local body. So, um, basically what I'm saying here is God has decided that we serve him from the context of a brotherhood. That's the main point out of there, what I want to get out of that. Okay, C. We believe that when God, and I'm sorry, we believe that when a person is led of God to cast his lot with a particular group of believers, he or she will also desire to embrace the practices of that group out of love for God and his people. Should members demonstrate an independent spirit or constantly find themselves on the edge of what is considered acceptable practice, we see this as a different problem as compared with members who find themselves at odds with a particular aspect of our group practice yet demonstrate a workable, teachable spirit. Can you understand that or do I need to explain that to you? I heard an emphatic statement at a brother's meeting probably a couple of years ago now when we were talking about some practical issues. said, I do not want to be a fence rider. We all have different perspectives here. We do not all agree on all the issues. That's okay. That's why we have the word submission in the Bible. And that's for all of us. But to be off on one side in many areas and unwilling to be approachable and open is entirely other thing. There are many reasons why people choose a particular church. I've heard people, heard of people choosing a church because they have a good band on Sunday mornings. And they like that, so they go to that church. Or they have a lot of youth programs and activities. Or their friends go there. Or because it looks like a solid church for their children. Or because there's a fervent spirit there and lots of evangelism. People choose churches for many different reasons. Not all bad reasons. Some of the reasons are legitimate. But here is some language that I have been struggling to express. We believe that when a person is led of God to cast his lot with a particular group of believers, he or she will also desire to embrace the practices of that group out of love for God and his people. And there's one more thing that will really bring it home to us. He or she will be led to embrace the practices of the center of that group and not just a subset of that group. Is there a difference? Many times there is. Embracing a subset produces cliques and factions in a group. If I have a heart for God 
and for his people, I will not be a fence rider. I can learn to blend and embrace. And if not, there will be strife and difficulty. Okay, moving on. D. In both tolerant and legalistic church settings, it is common for those who profess the name of Christ to defend practices that are a spiritual detriment. To avoid this, a local assembly must constantly be yielding itself to Christ, the head of the church, and be willing to change practices that are not pleasing to him. Now here is a check and the balance of the prior paragraph. The prior, prior, what I said, the last point, what I said was fairly strong. Here is a balance to that. Not just anything goes, either in liberty or in legalism. A social church will defend a long-time practice and refuse to change it, even though its use in the past is positively harmful, because we've always done it that way. And I, I just think of one one uh, one thing I can think of right now is rumspringa. Some of you know what that means. It's a practice. That is a detriment. It's harmful, but it won't, it's not changed. Liberal churches that don't uphold practices will defend practices. By the way, they do. <laughs> they will defend practices in the name of Christian liberty that are harmful. And we can see several generations ago when the television came onto the scene. And, and, of course, today, it's movies and media of all kinds. To avoid this, a local assembly must constantly be yielding itself to Christ, the head of the church, and be willing to change practices that are not pleasing to him. And that's what brothers' meetings are for. To look, not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons, therefore, is to look at our practices, discern God's heart, and evaluate, and then make decisions based on that. This is the heart of God. E, because the church of Jesus Christ is no longer united like it once was. Oh, that is a statement. How can that be? Are we just supposed to lay over, roll, roll over, and play dead and say, okay, we're just going to accept it? Or we, should we not be working for ecumenical something? <laughs> Here the assumption is made that, okay, that's the way it is, and we're going to accept it. The church of Christ is no longer united like it once was. We believe it is helpful to identify specific historic Christian practices and principles. However, we believe that if a church adopts standards and practices that are not specifically commanded in, this te- in the New Testament, it must be diligent in teaching the scriptural principles behind these standards, as well as the limitations of those standards. That is good language, very good language. The first sentence about uh, identifying historic practices is going to be addressed in the next point. So I'll only comment on the teaching part. We all heard 
the story, or most of us probably heard the story of this young wife who cut the roast or the ham or whatever she had. Before she put it in the pan, she cut it in half or she cut an end off. And then she put everything in the pan. And her young husband asked her, why did you do that? She said, well, I don't know. Mom always did that. So she goes back to mom and maybe they went back to grandma, forgetting the grandma. Oh, yeah, my, my pan wasn't big enough. So they were doing this thing and they didn't know why. Teaching, scriptural principles behind the practices and the standards that we adopt. They must be taught. They must be connected to the Bible. Here's this practice, but this is why. <clears throat> limitations. Are there any limitations? I actually addressed those limitations in a message by itself. Uh, and when I preached on ritual versus reality, in that case, following a practice does not make up for a lack of reality with God. That's a limitation. Just because you're doing a practice, and even though you can connect it back to the Bible, but doing that does not make up from a lack of reality with God. And that's a limitation, and we need to remember that. Okay, F. We have tried to identify practices that were considered normal for various pilgrim churches through the centuries. While we consider the practices below, the ones they have listed them, important, we do not consider them to be the weightiest matters of the gospel. Rather, we believe these are applications of biblical instructions that God wants us as his followers to practice today. We view these practices as pertinent in light of pertinent issues in light of the times in which we are living. But they are not written with the goal of undermining practices that are specifically commanded in the Bible. There's, I don't know if you're following, there's a lot of checks and balances in those words. I don't know if you followed that or not. It makes a statement, and it puts a check, makes a statement, puts a check. Good. They are not the weightiest matters of the gospel. Yet we believe there are applications for today that God wants us as his followers to practice today. Frank Reed says in an article that he titled Shakespeare and the Church History. If you didn't read that one, you should. Very interesting one. I'm going to only read a portion of it here. Said, those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. And he said, he's just quoting some, uh, he's quoting somebody that said these words. What we learn from history is that we do not learn from history. Why would that be true, he says? Is it because we do not study history? We should all study our Bible, right? We should all study the Bible. See what God says. Should you study history also? Is it because we do not study history? Is it because we think our generation 
It's different from all previous generations. We have it together now. I know they did it, but we have it together. Or is it because we have the same tendencies as all other persons in history, so we become the current actors, actresses acting out the same story, just repeating history and repeating history. It's just new, we're the new actors, but we're doing the same thing. And he says, why does it matter? He says, unless we interject some new data and or ways of processing the data, we will act on the data just as previous generations have acted, and we will have the same predictable outcomes. <laughs> that's why we should act. That's why we should study history. Then he goes on. He says, specifically as Anabaptist church groups make the changes from conservative to liberal, specific steps are followed, inadvertently perhaps, but followed nonetheless. And that's why he says we need to study church history, because the same steps get followed over and over. The next generation does the same thing. The next generation does the same thing. And we're not learning from history that if you take certain steps, you will have a certain outcome. That's what he's saying. Then he acted his definition to conservative and liberal. You always wanted one, right? <laughs> Here's a definition that he gave. Conservative. Wanting to preserve and conserve a simple biblical approach to life and wanting to preserve the culture derived from following that biblical approach. Hmm. Liberal definition. Allowing both social and religious acculturation to shape and mold the thinking away from the historic biblical concept that has shaped the Anabaptist communities. So liberal allows acculturation and the thinking goes away. Now here is the real reason why I am quoting this. Question. Is being biblical possible? Can we be possibly biblical? That's for it right. Can we be biblical? He's asking. Then he says, yes, being biblical is possible. However, often, the argument for biblical typically or frequently removes personal and group accountability. That's not the word it right. However, often, the argument for biblical for being biblical, often follows or removes personal and group accountability by following the teachings of Augustine and or Luther. The argument for being biblical will follow Augustine and Luther, is what he's saying. And in that case, they diminish personal and group accountability. He said, being biblical in an Anabaptist understanding cannot eliminate a cultural component. He said, being biblical does not allow acculturating, acculturation to a surrounding society that is not following a biblical model. So, here it is. Biblical, without a biblical culture dimension, is not biblical. 
biblical without the biblical cultural dimension is not biblical. That is why churches uphold sound practices as a necessity. But why do I quote this? Some of the things that we talk about, somebody might say that's only cultural. And you know what? It is. (laughs) It is. But it's necessarily so. It has to be. But the assumption is made, since it's cultural, it's not biblical-based. No, not necessarily so. Frank asserts that biblical does not allow acculturation to a surrounding society that is not following a biblical model. So biblical without a biblical cultural dimension is not biblical. Anyone who would deny that or not content for that, it's just following history, and it has a predictable outcome. And we just say that's, that's why we should study history. Someone might say, yes, but going down a rule and standard road has a biblical outcome also. <laughs> True, enough. That's a valid argument. It is. It has its pitfalls and dangers. But it is biblical to maintain and promote biblical standards for our day. It is that path that I am willing to go on. And by God's grace, with everything that's in me, with passion, bring my family and my church, our church congregation together on that path. <clears throat> on that biblical path. Now, I'd like to read a few examples of the practices that the confession of faith that they have that is biblical and commit to follow out of love for God and each other. I'm just going to pick four out out of the 20. It would be too lengthy to read them all. But I thought it would be good for uh, us to understand a little bit why my heart resonated with this confession. Number four is the first time, the first one. He said, uh, because we love God who planned the family unit, we take our marriage vows and our family life seriously. We promote family unity and togetherness in worship, in service, in work, in daily routines. As fathers, we lead the family in worship and prayer and teach sound doctrine and God's principles for holy living. This is a practice that a church is upholding because we love God. Number nine, because we love God and his kingdom, We choose vehicles, houses, and other possessions for practicality, economy, and service. We recognize that our vehicles and our homes reflect our values in life and reveal our sense of stewardship. 
We want them to show that our treasures are in heaven and our hearts are fixed on humility. We avoid luxury or sporty vehicles or eye-catching colors. We choose simple homes with simple furnishing chose for utility. Because we purpose to invest as much time and money as possible in God's kingdom, we seek to minimize our spending on what we consume and to seriously link seriously limit expenditures that serve no truly useful function. Can you find a challenge in that verse, in, in that, in that uh, point? That challenges all of us to the core. And it's for a reason. It's because we love God, because we love his kingdom, because we're not going to be here. So we uphold these practices and values, and we teach them. Although you could connect these to the scripture very well, but there's nothing about cars in the scripture, yet we pin them to it. Okay, number 14. There's different ones about music. There's uh, uh, yeah, many, many different things here. Because we love God and his righteousness, we choose modest, simple, serviceable dress as the scriptures teach. Because we love our neighbor, we reject anything designed to foster lustful looks or thoughts. In view of these principles, we reject the display and ornamentation of the world's fashions and fads. We seek to glorify God in our bodies as well as our spirits, for both belong to God. We choose dress that reflects humility, and godly virtues. Specifically, we avoid form-fitting clothes, loud colors, sheer clothing, and eye-catching styles. We brothers choose loose-fitting trousers and modest shirts. Our sisters wear simple, unadorned dresses with long skirts, modest sleeves, a double-layered bodice, and concealing necklines. We expect both brothers and sisters to choose fabrics and patterns that deliberately conceal body forms and promote modesty. We expect that. <clears throat> and number 17, fourth point here. Because we love God, we avoid the pursuits of a pleasure-mad society. As followers of our Lord Jesus, we want to live as he did serving God and others, not pleasing ourselves. We reject the world's entertainment, amusement park, professional sporting events, movie theaters, and such like. The world's entertainment diminishes a hunger and thirst for righteousness. We find godly recreation in family-oriented activities and in Christian service and fellowship. And that's just a sampling of this confession Brothers and sisters, that resonates with my heart. That kind of language. It's a heart language that I can identify with. I find it both appealing and extremely challenging. I think it is simply following Jesus in a practical way in today's world. It's what Frank calls 
biblical with a cultural dimension. <clears throat> Do we always live up to our ideals? Do we as a brotherhood always live up to our ideals? Or God's ideals? No. But with grace and humility, sensing our need of God, we can walk together in a dark world, both believing the right things and living a practical life that shows what we believe. With the testimony of a changed life and the reality of a separated life unto God. A separated unto God lifestyle. So what does turning the page look like? It means letting the past conflict go. We need to deal with reconciliation in a godly way. By the way of forgiveness and love. We trust God that God has done a work in our midst in a difficult time. We trust he has. And they trust that he will continue to do so. And moving forward again, together, in spiritual and practical ways, serve God and our fellow man. So I don't know if I made it clear what turning the page will look like as we attempt to lead out. That is some of the practical dimension of leading out in the future and where Oasis is planning to go. I hope I, I'd be willing and very open to uh, any personal discussion that anyone would have that a question that had not been answered or things that are not clear. So may God bless you all.